Well, I, I'm, I'm excited that Pastor Mike McIntosh was able to join us. It was, I, I was kind of um, last minute, and, and, and Pastor Mike kind of arranged a schedule to come and be with us here today, guys. And I so appreciate uh, just his heart. And over the years, he, he's been a, a, just an instrument in my life as God has spoken through him to me on multiple occasions uh, through pastor's conferences in different places that I've been at. And uh, I'm just excited to, to have him here with us today. Would you give uh, Pastor Mike McIntosh a warm welcome? Thank you. Hey, before we get spiritual, um, I'd like to say that there is a really good-looking 1964 Chevy Impala jacked up a little bit in the parking lot. Whose is that? Nobody here? I can claim it? <laughs> well, if you know whose that is. Where? Oh, that's yours? Very cool. You look like a very benevolent man. <laughs> if I ask for your shirt, give me your Impala. <laughs> now, that's very nice. I like old cars. You ever want to sell it? Call Ray. Call me. Uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 25. All right, we'll turn there in the Old Testament. And I call this message for us today, Don't Be a Knucklehead. And I don't mean a Harley Davidson or an Indian. I mean a uh, knucklehead. Women usually aren't knuckleheads, but the men are the knuckleheads. We've all been knuckleheads at one time or another. And... Um, I want to step out here because I've been watching on television and it looks like everybody's sitting at a table talking. So if I step over here for a minute, they'll realize this is a podium. And you don't get all this cross in there, Ray. That's very cool. The camera, yeah. Um, there was a dinner that a pastor's wife had and they had invited several people, a lot of people in fact, for dinner. And they, they all showed up, some of them early, nobody late. And so as they all sat at the big long table, and many of them were strangers to their little eight-year-old girl, um, her mom said to her, I want you to say the prayer for the meal. And she leaned over to her mom and said, um, I'm kind of bashful, mom, I, I wouldn't know what to say. So she said, just say something you've heard mommy say. That's okay. So she bowed her head and she said, oh Lord, why on earth did I invite all these people for dinner? <laughs> So we're going to pray, and we're going to ask the Lord to bless our hearts in the next few minutes. I know lunch is next, and uh, you're thinking of that. Your stomach is, at least. And I've seen it out back. It's really a nice setup that's going on out there. A lot of people out there getting ready to feed you. Lord, this morning we are grateful to be alive. And we know that life is very precious. We only get one chance at living and we have no idea when our life is to end, but we trust you. And Lord, I think of all my brothers sitting here right now. The power that you have given them as a message is not by might nor by strength, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And I would ask that you would empower each one of us to be godly men fearful of no one, and confident in humility to stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ and to stand for Jesus. And Lord, I'd ask that each one of us men would see the seriousness of the hour that we live in around the world. And I know that it's easy for us to think we have nothing to offer, but that's part of the devil's attack. We have everything to offer because we can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens us. We have been told we believe that. And we're not looking for notoriety, but we are looking for your righteousness in us. So my brothers right here have the ability to turn this state upside down for your glory and honor, to come against the evil forces that pollute the communities and the young uh, children with drugs and pornography. Lord, these men, just with their prayer power, can change things. We're grateful. 
So I pray for my brother that they would increase their communication with you and they would write down their assignment and they would hide it in their hearts and they'd fall in love with the word and they'd let the word guide them and the people they love. So we have very ugly days looming ahead of us. Our country needs your help. We've spit in your face. We've turned our back on you. We've walked away from your throne. And now all the protection that you gave us as a people is daily being eroded. And evil men seem to become stronger. And yet you have all these good men here that could do so much for so many people. So use us. Call on us. Let us see this special time and the special calling in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, this wasn't Ray, but it wasn't, uh, it was a pastor, and it wasn't Raoul Reese. But um, this preacher's kid talked to his dad one morning, and uh, he said, Daddy, every Sunday you first go out on the platform on the stage and you sit down, and then you sit there while the music is going on before you preach a sermon, and you always have your head bowed. What, what are you doing when you have your head bowed for two or three songs and you don't look up? He said, well, son, I'm praying. I'm asking the Lord to give me a good sermon. The little boy just looked at him and said, well, Daddy, why doesn't he? <laughs> so I'm going to try my best, all right? This isn't a sermon. This is from my heart. Verse 1, I'd like you to underline these first three words in the Bible of the man sitting on your left-hand side. Just reach over, then Samuel died. You all know who Samuel is. He was a judge. He was a priest. He was a prophet. Uh, he anointed David to be the king of Israel. He was uh, raised in the temple. His mother uh, gave him as an offering to the Lord to be used in the temple. The Lord called him when he was just a few years old and spoke to him and gave him his, his mission, his calling in life. So it's very important that you know, then Samuel died. Now, of course, a text without a context is nothing but a pretext. So this is a little bit out of context. It says, then Samuel died because the previous chapters give us the context of Israel in the time of Samuel and then we start right here that he's died. So you can go back and read the context of that. But in the context of this chapter, the um, author has given us about four, maybe five people that we need to look at. And you may want to write that down. One was David. These are the stars of the play. Uh, two was Nabal, N-A-B-A-L. Three was his wife, Abigail. And then there were servants made servants, and there were the soldiers of David. So he's going to give us a thumbnail sketch of five or six different people to look at. And, and these are the main players uh, in this chapter. Uh, Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now, I don't know if you've ever had someone, and I assume that all of us in this room has, someone who has had somebody very dear to them die. It could be uh, your father, your grandfather, a brother, sister, uncle, mom. But I think in this room we've all experienced the influence of somebody in our life, and then they're gone. So I, I want to give you this background. This is what happens that David, as soon as the country comes together and weeps, David goes off into the wilderness with his troops. He has about 400 men at this time that are following him. And they're not the stellar uh, image of a poster child of an Israeli man. It said many who were in trouble with the law and many who were in debt, uh, they followed him. So these were guys that weren't the best of society but they were mean motor scooters, and they liked to fight, and they all loved David. They thought he was a man's man, and they followed him wherever he would lead. 
So David is, is missing this man that's been in his life since he was a teenager when God called him, anointed him, and then he went and fought Goliath as his first assignment to take on a nine or ten foot man and with one stone throw it so hard, which we know he wouldn't have that strength to break the bone of the skull in the forehead and penetrate so deeply into the middle of the, the brain that it killed him. So that tells us he was a guy willing to go and do what God said, but he is also aware that he didn't have the power to do it on his own. He's a great example of a man that had been empowered by God and understood it wasn't by might nor by power, but my, my spirit. You may be a martial art artist person. You may be a great shot with a rifle or a pistol. You may bench press your weight. You may be really strong. But if the Lord's not with you, that's not going to work. Now, we all like to be in good shape. I remember on my 50th birthday, well, before my 50th, a number of years before that, Franklin Graham told me I'd gone to his office for the first time. He had a weight set in a side room. And he said, I lift weights every day. Mike, you have to be able to bench press your weight. So I just took that to heart, and I worked out my younger years. And when I was 50, I was able to bench press 200 pounds. And I was kind of impressed about that. I weighed 200 pounds. I was bench pressing my weight. I have learned from that it's best to diet and lose all the weight you can, because then you can do about 140 pounds, and it's just, you know what I'm saying? Okay. <laughs> so um, I bench pressed 200 pounds, and I went out on the beach, and I ran three miles with no problem. I felt really great. But then I turned 60. And I bench pressed 20 pounds and ran, ran 300 feet. But then I turned 70, and I was able to show up at the Southwest Men's Conference in Berlin. <laughs> so my exercise. So without the Lord in our life, there's really nothing that we can accomplish. So number one, we learn about the situation. There's heartache um, this man that loved God so much that the people listened to him, and this man that loved the man that died so much that he listened to is dead. Now, there may be in your life someone this very month or week or year that this person has died in your life. And I'd like to encourage you that the pain is very real. You don't want to duck the pain, but you don't want the pain to be there every day the rest of your life. So the feelings at the beginning are raw feelings and true feelings. And you should feel free to grieve and be brokenhearted and to cry. Men do cry. And to be able to express yourself in prayer or thanksgiving to God that this person meant so much to you. But this is a time when Israel is off balance. And when somebody important in your life leaves you are off balance. This is why the Bible says God hates divorce. It does not say that God hates the man that divorces or the woman that divorces. He hates divorce because of the ripple effect of all the pain it causes around everybody, the guilt feelings, frustration, and especially the kids. And like many of you, I was raised by a, a, father, a fatherless home by my mom, and uh, it's difficult and especially when you become a, t a teenage boy and then a teenage man, to not have those guidelines that a father puts in there. Now, we know somebody like Adrian Peterson, one of the greatest runners in football history, is in big trouble simply because he disciplined his son. I've never looked at the pictures. My wife says it was excessive. Uh, we all have heard the verse, uh, spare the rod, you will spoil the child. But like in my case, there was no rod. My mom's anger would be there, but I knew that I was stronger than her anger. So if you're off balance, sometimes you make the wrong decisions and you get around the wrong people. So David is off balance at this time in his life. Israel is off balance at this time. A great time for the enemy to come and to destroy and to rob and to steal. When you're off balance, you want to spend a lot of quiet time listening what this is all about in your life because it's not you that died but it's the other person so you're seeing it from your point of view I may be involved with you but I'm seeing it from this point of view and somebody else is involved with you in the family but they see it from a whole different perspective 
And the place that he would find refuge is where there are no people, in the wilderness. And he goes to the wilderness. Now, I start out with this because you'll notice this is all one flowing statement. So the writer wants us to know this could be a Bible study in itself, just verse 1. And then he comes to bring, if we, we were reading the script of a play, he brings the antagonist out to our eyes. And here he is. There was a wise man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. So now we have some superlatives about this guy. He's not just rich. He's very rich. So he's not just a millionaire. He's a multimillionaire. He, he has no need uh, asset-wise at all. But yet, he's a knucklehead. And he keeps going on being a, a knucklehead when he could have been used by God to be a tremendous blessing to the people of Israel at a time they're off balance. But he's self-centered. He's got a strong ego. He has a strong drive to prove to everybody that he can do anything he wants to do. So we know he owns a lot of real estate. Now, one day, uh, a man from New Mexico came up to me. He started in New Mexico. He lives in California. He's in his early 80s, late 70s. And he said, uh, this man was very wealthy. And I said, yeah, I, I can't imagine it, but... He said, just look what it said. He had 3,000 sheep. I was raised on a ranch in New Mexico, not far from Roswell. And um, he said, my father and my grandfather had amassed 20 square miles of land on our ranch, uh, 20,000 square acres, excuse me, uh, on, on our ranch. And he said, we had half of everything that this man had, where he had... 3,000 sheep. He said, my father had about 1,500 sheep. He had 1,000 goats. We had 500 goats, but it took us 20,000 acres for these large numbers to graze and to be fed and to be looked after. So this man was tremendously wealthy, just taking the idea of what this elderly man had grown up with. I've always looked at that and said, well, why wouldn't a guy that's so rich appreciate that he's so rich? It's like one day they asked Howard Hughes, at the time one of the richest men in the world, definitely the richest or number two in America, Mr. Hughes, how much money is too much? Or, or too much that you, you would just say no more? He said, how much money would it take? He said, just one more dollar. And this is Nabal, always going after one more dollar. Okay, now I'll get another dollar, and then I'll get another. He lived for the money and the cushion it gave him. He didn't live for God. He didn't live for man. He lived for self. This isn't an abnormal story because we know many men that are not very rich, are not rich, and they still hang out in the bars and the taverns and uh, live for themselves and come home late from work and carry on uh, an adulterous affair or three or four or five, the length of their marriage. And they, they're living for their own selves and for the pleasure. That's a knucklehead. Because the greatest love that we can do is to lay our lives down for our brethren. Greater love has no more any man than this, Jesus said, to become a servant, not a self-seeker. So now we've got this character on the scene, and he's going to bring us a third character. And the name of the wife was Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. But the man was a knucklehead. He was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. Now, for it to say he's very rich, he's, he's expounding on the wife that she's got good understanding. The fear of the Lord brings understanding. Fear of the Lord brings knowledge. Fear of the Lord brings wisdom. And for them to say, the writer to say that she is a woman of understanding means she understood the household she ran. She understood the man she was married to. She understood the politic of the area, the country. 
She had great understanding of people's attitudes and hearts. And this is a very good quality for a woman to have. But then it says, and she was very beautiful. She wasn't just pleasant to the eyes or good-looking. She is outstandingly beautiful. And you can let your imagination go and figure out what she looked. Well, no, don't let your imagination go and think what she looked like. Uh, she was a good-looking woman, right? So um, David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. And David sent ten young men and said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. That's important. Go and say, David, the son of Jesse, has sent us. Now, many of you, if not most of you, have served in the military. I was in uh, Army basic training at the age of 18 years old at Fort Ord. And when I think of this 10, I think of a squad. And I understand a squad, if they have a special mission, every one of them, 10 or 12, need to really be plugged in, understanding one another of how you think and how I think. And when we say, let's everybody move out, we understand that two of our squad members are always exceptionally cautious, and they aren't going to be the first ones to move out, but they are definitely going to be good backup. We know there are a couple of men in our squad that they just love the firefight. They love the sound. They like the tracers. They like to see that they're winning and taking more ground. And they're great guys to let be out in the front. So each one of us has a place in the squad, right? You have a radio operator. He'll communicate with the helicopters or with the, the fighter jets that would come in and uh, strafe an area and clear it out for the land troops. A squad is a member of a platoon. A platoon is a member of a company. A company is a member of the brigade. And uh, these guys are just like SEAL Team 6, Ten of them. These aren't wimps. These are men that know how to fight. They're probably strong, buffed, big forearms, strong back. Uh, they look weather-beaten being out in the wilderness. They are afraid of no one. And David sends them and says, go find the owner of all this land. His name is Nabal. And tell him that the son of Jesse has asked you to come and ask him for some help. So there's the story. This is what happens. Because all of us as men have these stories coming at us about every day. And we may not know what's behind these two or three people or these ten people that are trying to influence us. It may be good, it may be bad. So we never want to jump to conclusions, and nor do we want to make snap decisions. We want to hear from the Lord in everything we do. Otherwise, we're going to be knuckleheads like Nabal. So... The ten go out, and they greet him. He sent the ten young men, and thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity. Now he's telling his men, this guy is more than you think. Now David had intel, military intel. But having been anointed by Samuel to be the king, he had spiritual intel. But he had access to leaders and information of areas that he's going into and who he could count on. And that's the great part of our brotherhood as brothers, that we may not know each other face-to-face, -face, that we're out every week together or something, but we know when we're talking with a brother. And we know that we can trust this man. Doesn't mean that all Christian men can be trusted, no. Doesn't mean that you have to trust every Christian man. In fact, the hard part of being a Christian man is the vulnerability of it all. And we've been trained our whole lives as the boy in the family or the teenage football player or the military guy, the guy that's making the money, the guy that's helping provide the house. We, we've come to realize that we have to protect ourselves and not let anybody get close. But as a Christian man, we have to be vulnerable. We're following the commander-in-chief. He was extremely vulnerable. He did not lash out at people. And he didn't defend himself. He always spoke with God. So the great thing that I have found in all the years I've been a Christian is that I don't need to be a scrapper. I don't need to defend myself. I don't need to worry about ballroom brawls. I don't need to worry about what somebody gestures with their hand when I 
cut in front of them and stop my car and get into it, I can be totally at ease with myself, and that puts me at ease with every man in this room. I have nothing to compete with you about. But we were raised, starting in junior high and high school, in sports, and we became very, very competitive. And if you raised to the top of whatever sport you're in, you were a hero to the other teenagers in your community. The sports pages are full of them, running backs, quarterbacks, outbacks, any kind of backs, um, that you look at them and say, wow, I remember that. But as a Christian man, yes, you are vulnerable. But now you have, as I mentioned last night, discernment. And you can discern when you're in the presence of somebody that you can't really trust. But you're not going to put walls up so it puts them on the defensive. You're just going to know, I'm not going to say everything that I thought I was going to say, uh, and I'm going to bless this person in front of me. So you've been challenged by heaven in a big, big way. Because as a man, we have always been trained that we are it. And it's the survival of the fittest. And at somewhere during our lives as men, I have seen, I have watched, I have experienced that men can only take so much and they get off the train and they settle. Some settle for a camper shell, others settle for a mobile home, some for an RV, some for an apartment, some for a house, some for a mansion, some for vacation houses everywhere but they get off, and they're no longer thinking about the crowd or the people. They're thinking about themselves and how they can enjoy the final years of their lives and how they can be more comfortable. It's very natural. But in the Lord, I have found such a joy that I know I'm empowered by Him that I can do all things through Christ Jesus who lives within me, who's empowered me. All things. And I've been in the middle of some of those all things in the Middle East and different places over the years. And I've watched the Lord in the midst of humongous violence allow paths to be opened that you could walk right through all the trouble and nobody sees you. So I want to ask you as a brother today that you would consider some prayer this week saying, God, what is it that you created me for? Definitely, the Bible tells us, his good pleasure. He loves you, but there is a mission. It may be to be the best dad you possibly could be, to be the best husband, provider, friend, to be the best supervisor, manager, CEO, treasurer, to be the best that you can be. And my best may not even get anywhere near your best, but you and I aren't competing. We are responding to a call. And our country has some very dark days ahead of it, the way things are headed. We know, without a doubt, this is available knowledge, there are 22 major Al-Qaeda training camps in the United States of America. One outside of Portland, Oregon, one out of Tucson, Arizona, and you can look it up and you can find it. Our Justice Department, who the head of the Justice Department just resigned, knows about these people. They have not shut them down nor arrested them, but there are men being trained to attack our families, our schools, our theaters, our malls. And if you and I just kick back and say, oh, we'll be one of the first casualties, and our family will be too. No way am I advocating violence. I'm advocating men be men, not knuckleheads. That you are living for me and my family, and me and my family are living for you and your family. And we don't want you to get hurt. And we don't want you to have to go without. So we'll work together by talking to God, the creator of heaven and earth, while there are others beyond human understanding that have no value of life. And they could care less about you or about me. So the lines have been drawn. There is a physical war going on, ready to now pounce on us. However, when men get together and pray, 
God who is in heaven will hear their prayers. When you humble yourself before the face of God, he will acknowledge you and he will bring peace and he will protect. But if men, especially God's men, you're just flipping about life, the Lord's listening to other people that are very, very much in need and they're humble. You and I, this day, can change the course of the coming future by being men and not knuckleheads. Men of the Lord, not selfish knuckleheads living for self. So now this beautiful woman comes on the scene. And here's what you're going to say to this man. You're going to say that David said to the young man, go up to Carmel, go up to Nabal, greet him in my name. Otherwise, this isn't a home invasion. And uh, we're not looking to hurt your wealth or any person that works for you. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, peace be to you, peace to your house, peace to all of your assets. Now I have heard that you have shearers, your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day of all times. The Jews are this week, um, you know, celebrating Rosh Hashanah, and they are during a feast. Boy, during a feast time, New Year's, Christmas, Thanksgiving, that's when we're all kind of benevolent, and we help people. And here he's saying, look, it's a feast time, and everybody's celebrating, but we're stuck out here in the wilderness, and we need a little bit of help here. So uh, you can even ask your young men, and they will tell you, therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day, and please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David. So he is humbling himself with that term son, that he's a younger man, lowering himself, even though he's been anointed as king, he's concerned about his men, that they are out of food. So when David's young men uh, came and they spoke to Nabal according to all the, these words in the name of David, and they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, and he said, Who is David? Now, that's a knucklehead. Who is the son of Jesse? That's a double knucklehead, one for each ear. There are many servants nowadays. So here's his response. Well, we all know that. But this is a special kind of servant who break away each one from his master. Shall I then take my bread, my water, my, 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 and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men whom I do not know where they're from? Now, that's very practical reasoning, of course. But it sounds justified, but it's not. You are to show love. And Nabal's not doing that. So David's young men turned uh, on their heels, went backwards, and they came and told him all these words. Now, you remember that when you did an about face and you're standing at attention, you took your right foot and you put it behind your left heel and you spun on your heel. Basically, these ten men all did an about face. Get out of here. They didn't stop. Remember when Legion asked uh, Jesus if he could go with him? And uh, Jesus said, no. Rather go to your town and to your people and tell them the wonderful things that the Lord has done for you. That was a silent no, in a sense, because the local inhabitants, when they saw what Jesus had done, delivering uh, the demons into 2,000 pigs that committed suicide, uh, they were really mad because their economy had been broken up. And they said, get out of here. Total silence. But the next verse says, and Jesus got in the boat. He didn't turn around and say, do you know who I am? I'm the Son of God. I can give you 4,000 sheep just with a snap of a finger. I am here to do good. What are, you, what are you pushing me around for? No, he didn't do that. He just turned around and left. And only one, the worst man in the community that was just delivered, said, can I go with you? And he said, no, you stay here amidst all of this that you see, these godless people, and you tell them the good things that the Lord has done. So if you're in the midst of an about face right now, you're walking away of something, don't let bitterness get you. Don't let anger get you. Just keep on walking until you've laid it all out before the king, and he'll show you what to do. So David said to his men, um, every man 
gird on his sword. So every man put on his sword, and David also girded on his sword, and about 400 men went with David. And 200 stayed with the supplies, and 400 went with David. Now, one of the young men told Abigail, this is the wife, Nabal's wife, saying, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled him. But the men were very good to us, Abigail. They protected us. We were not hurt, nor did we have anything stolen. We didn't miss anything as long as we accompanied these men when we were in the fields. They were like a wall to us, both by night and day. All the time we were with them, keeping the sheep. They didn't ask for anything. It was just David's nature that he used his assets to help other people. And um, these men tell the wife, this is exactly the truth. They were a wall to us. Now, therefore, know and consider what you will do, for great harm is determined against our master and against all of his household, which means you and us. For he is surely a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. You don't want to be a knucklehead that people can't come to you and talk to you reasonably without flaring up or getting angry. This is the kind of guy this guy is. When they said the word scoundrel, it actually says he is a son of Belial, the devil. He's the devil's son. This guy has nothing good inside of him. And that's an employee speaking. And um, son of Belial, Abigail made haste. She hurried up. She heard this, this news, and it wasn't good news. Took 200 loaves of bread. Now, that's not bad, huh? That's like a third of a loaf for every man. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five says of ro roasted uh, grain, and 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys, plural. This would be like us pulling up to... You have Costco in New Mexico? Yeah? This would be like us pulling up to uh, Costco on a Saturday and seeing 10 SUVs all lined up being filled up that she did. She got so much, it was overkill. And she was going to take it to David and his men. And so uh, she said to her servants, go on before me, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. So it was on the ride, uh, she rode on the donkey, that she went down under cover of the hill and she went down uh, there uh, were David and his men coming towards her, and she meant them. Now David had said, Surely uh, I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missing, and of all that belongs to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. He's got his game face on. He's painted half of his face blue, and like all of his Scots, he's put his kilt on, and he's shouting, Freedom! And he's going for it. He's got his game face on. He's really ticked. Uh, surely in vain I protected this guy. And may God do so and more also to me, to my enemies of David, if I leave one male of all whom belong to him by morning light. Otherwise, I'm going to kill them all. When Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed down to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, On me, my Lord, on me, let the iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel, this son of Belial, for as his name is, so is Nabal. And folly is with him. But your maidservant did not see the young men uh, of my Lord whom you sent. Now, what does she mean about that? Well, as his name is, Nabal means fool. Who would name their son fool? You know, when you look in the New and Old Testament, and you see these people in the Bible, and you look up their name, it ultimately meant who they were or where they were in life. And, uh, for instance, my God is king. Uh, the husband of Naomi in the book of Ruth. My God is king, Elimelech. The people saw this man as a godly man. He was a godly man. But could you imagine? You take your baby and what are you going to name him? We'll dedicate him to the Lord right now. Fool. This guy's a real fool, I can tell. And he went through his whole life like that and he lived up to his name. Knucklehead fool. That was him. 
Now, therefore, my Lord, please, uh, as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming, so she knows the Lord, coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. So if there is someone in your life today that is being the knucklehead, back away, and you just pray. Let God fight your battles. He understands what's going on. So just back away and let it unfold and trust it's God unfolding the situation. Don't you be the knucklehead. Stand back. So she cries out to him, Now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who know my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. She's prophesying now. She's a godly woman. Because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord. And evil is not found in you throughout your days. She knew his reputation. The husband says, who's David? Who's the son of Jesse? And she says, you are the king. And your house will be established forever. And I bow before you and say, let all this come upon me. That's a picture of Jesus. Let all the trouble that this scoundrel has caused, this knucklehead, come upon me. And that's what Jesus did for us knuckleheads this morning. He let all of our goofiness and all the things that we were doing for the devil be put upon him, and he died with all of that sin that you and I committed. And God has forgiven you because the Lamb of God has been slain. And he has washed you, and he has cleansed you. You're free. Remember, you're free, men. You're free. You're not tied to addictions. You're not tied to bad things. You are free. And the only one that gets you in trouble is yourself. And you handcuff yourself and tie yourself up to the enemy's prison post, and you don't need to be doing that anymore. You've been set free, and Jesus said, whom the Son sets free is free. What's the last word? Indeed. It's a fact. You are free men this day. Well, there's three of you that understand that, and I appreciate it. <clears throat> so, let's close this out. This present which I've given you, I understand who you are. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life. But the life of my Lord shall be bound. She knows about King Saul chasing him. In the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall uh, sting out, sling out. He shall huh, out them. As from uh, the pocket of a sling, David and Goliath. And it shall come to pass when the Lord uh, has done for my Lord, so Jesus is in her life, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you. And God is speaking nothing but good about you this morning. In fact, in Psalm 139, it tells us how precious are the thoughts of the Lord concerning you, outnumbering the grains of sand on the earth. Not just the Gobi Desert or the Saharan Desert, but all the beaches, all the islands, all of the continents, wherever there is sand, his thoughts about you, King David wrote, outnumber that. That's how much you are loved by God. Now, you may have a small Sunday school religious experience and you don't understand that you're as important as you really are and that you're an empowered man in the manner that you are. Don't live for what's right here in front of you, this physical we're talking about forever. And so you need to take more steps of faith because we need to run to the finish line. It's being set up right in front of us just as the dinner is being set up for us right now. So David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. Wow. He saw how beautiful she was. And you know he is a man looking at her. And uh, he was saying, Praise the Lord. This beauty, whoa, and she's spiritual, and she knows who I am. Every man wants their woman to know who they are, and uh, he's just overwhelmed here. And David said to Abigail, blessed are you, is the Lord, and blessed is your vice. Blessed are you, because you have kept me this day, and he recognizes it, from a, coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. David got out of hand. So uh, 
For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives and, and uh, has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, remember it said she went in haste, surely by morning light there would be no men who have been left to Nabal. I would have had every one of them dead. David received from her hand what she had uh, brought him and said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. But under his breath, he probably said, And I have respected your beautiful person. And Abigail went to Nabal. And there he was holding a party, a feast in the house, like the feast of a king. That's what his money was about. He could sit at the head of the table. Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he is very drunk. She is very beautiful. He is very drunk, a knucklehead. Therefore, she told him nothing, little or much, until the morning light. And so it was in the morning, when the wine had gone from Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became like a stone. He had a heart attack. When he realized what a knucklehead he was, his mind is rushing to say, well, how can I get out of this? Boom, the heart gets out into that kind of pressure, and he gets a heart attack. And she was wise. Let the wine get out of him because you may slap her or abuse her, and no man should ever slap or touch or abuse a woman. They're smaller than us, and uh, you've been in more fights than they have, but you have to look at your own knucklehead self at that point. What is it that has caused you to be so angry that you would hit a woman? What reason would there be? Not if you love one another. We're to love. Not to avenge ourselves or to prove that we're right. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will exalt you in due time. Okay, I just heard they have lit up the burners out there. The food is starting to get heated. Um, so it happened. After this guy, it was like stone. After about 10 days that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. The fool is dead. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Knucklehead, and he has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord, see, he justified in his own mind, I'm killing them all. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal under his own head. Underline that in your own Bible. Because if you're prone to get even, and I definitely was a person like that when I was younger, um, you may get me down and I may look kind of bad, but you'll never know where it came from, but I'm going to get even. And God's saying, no, you don't have to get even. Just get right with God. And it'll become so small, you'll say, why am I wasting my time? David says, I realize that my anger, my pride, that this guy pricked my pride, that I was going to go in and kill hundreds of, not dozens of men, and he acknowledges that it was a woman that got his attention, and God used that beauty. But David had a problem with women, as you well know. Bathsheba, a classic picture. So he said he has returned the wickedness, and, and the Lord will return wickedness on the heads of wicked people. When the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her, saying, David sent us to you, for the Lord has done this, he sent us to you to become his wife. Now, you don't send a squad of Navy SEALs to t propose to somebody you want to marry, but that's what David did. And I think he was flexing his muscle there, but they went and said, he wants to marry you. So this very beautiful, understanding woman, it says, Abigail rose in haste in such a hurry as she was to stop the bloodshed, she wanted to marry King David. Uh, he was a handsome man. He was a strong man. He had a great political mind. He was a man that loved God very, very much. He used all of his assets for all the people that he served. He never used them for himself. He furthered God's plan in other men's lives. And so she was in a hurry. She knew who this guy had uh, been. So Abigail rose in haste, rode on a donkey, which, you know, in today's parlance, that would be a lady riding an ATV or a dirt bike. Every guy would like to see their wife out there jumping the sand dunes and doing things like that, right? So she hops on her four-legged ATV and was attended by five of her maidens. 
Uh, we don't know if there were more, but she knew how to manage people in a large household and finances. And she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. Wow. He could have ruined the whole thing by being a knucklehead. But he listened to wisdom and understanding. And he listened to the Lord. And he simply said, forgive me, God. On my own, in my own strength, I can do nothing but be a knucklehead and always hurt people. I thank you that I have this woman. Now, you'd think he'd be satisfied. But look at the last two verses. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel. And so both of them were his wives. You know, King Solomon had 1,000 wives, 700 concubine and 300 wives. He was the, uh, the wisest man in the world, the Bible says. God said there was no one like him before. There's no one now. And there'll be nobody as smart and as wise as him in the future. But yet, any fool, any Nabal, any fool knows that one woman is too much to handle, let alone a thousand. I mean, so I don't know about his wisdom. But Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to this other man, Palti, Pati, the son of Laish, whom was from Galtim. So he's a knucklehead and taking another wife. He should have been just super pleased with, with Abigail. And I'd like to just ask that you'd be super pleased with your wife if you're a married man. Be super pleased with your sons and your daughters, and don't be harsh with them. That was one of the accusations about the knucklehead. He was harsh. He was evil. He was mean. He was so in love with himself at the expense of those around him. It caused a heart attack when he realized what a knucklehead he was. We have no sign of repentance in this man's heart. But if you will follow the ways of the Lord and trust in your heart, with all of your heart, in the Lord, he will direct your steps, he will guide you, and he will bless you. And it's all relative. You're not in competition with the guy down the street that has $100,000 and you have $94,000 and you're going to get $101 at any cost. There's no competition that you can run three miles or 30 miles and the brother on this end of the town is in a wheelchair and can't run any miles. You're not in competition anymore. You're in the duty of the Lord God Almighty, the leader of the host of heaven. He has called you this day to put on the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6, and stand against the wiles, the craftiness, the deception of the devil. And last night, as I said, Jesus' first response to the end of the world was, take heed that no man deceives you. Don't deceive yourself. Don't be a knucklehead. Be a godly man that humbles himself and helps people. Shall we stand and shall we pray? Father, you've prepared a great lunch, a great meal out here in the back, and we appreciate it, and we pray your blessings upon that food and that all of us would be nourished by it. And as I pulled in and saw so many people fixing the, the uh, food and putting out the chairs and the tables and the silverware and the plates and the napkins, uh, I pray a blessing on all of those men and women and the servants that are here waiting on us. Lord, I pray for my brothers. We are sons of the Most High God, you have said. And that means that we have never seen or ever heard or ever entered into our heart or understanding the things that you have prepared for those that love you. Whatever it is. We know it's probably a million times more than whatever Nabal had. And nobody can imagine what you have for us. So we thank you for that hope that you have that we're way beyond any wealth of any man on this planet. And yet it's just so natural for you to pave your streets with fine gold. It's so natural for you to just give a beautiful future to all the men that love you. So let not this state ever be the same from this day on. Every time we try to defend ourselves or let our anger or our wrath lead our paths, let us have the understanding and wisdom of Abigail to stop and realize we're going to hurt people here. And it could be our own family by our big mouth or lack of motivation to work full-time or whatever it is. Help us be God-fearing men and men that have an ear to heaven. 
and may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven and come quickly, Lord Jesus. In the meantime, separate us from the knuckleheads and let us see our brothers and let us know that we're in this together and let us stand for righteousness and fall for nothing. Let these men find prosperity in you. Everyone that is struggling financially this afternoon, I ask that miraculously you will pour out blessings upon them and the wisdom to manage. I pray for those that are struggling to find work that you would help them. I pray for those that instead of being able to pray and uh, to seek you, they go for a six-pack like I used to, Lord. Um, or they go to something else. Let these men be the brightest men in all of New Mexico. And let their house be known as a home where God resides. And that their children and their spouses and their family, their moms and dads, are covered. Because these men care for others more than they do themselves. So bless them. Honor them. Raise them up. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Everybody said together, amen. All right. <clears throat> I would like to say one parting remark because I have to go to the airport, but if somebody could just get the keys for me and bring them up, I'll be glad to drive that to the airport. All right. <laughs> God bless you. And it's an honor to be here with you. I've been here three or four other times, but I look forward to this. I really do. I just came from somewhat a physically grueling two weeks in Florida and, and Wisconsin and we held a Festival of Life, which we're hoping to hold in McIntosh, uh, New Mexico, for our first one in New Mexico. And uh, we're in this little town called um, La Crosse, Wisconsin, 51,000 inhabitants in a branch of the University of Wisconsin. And this week is their Oktoberfest. It's a big, drunken uh, festival of German beer, Oktoberfest. In whatever city I usually go into for a festival, we always have like a mayor's luncheon or a governor's breakfast or get the politicians together and share with them about the Lord and definitely law enforcement. So I just come from a 9-11 memorial service for uh, Miami, Dade County, police officers, federal officers, uh, local departments, and uh, honored the families that were there that had lost loved ones in the line of duty. And then over across the state uh, for a married couples retreat, where a man, the last night that we're finishing up, a man was standing talking to the pastor, like Ray, who had invited me. And this man was from New York, and you could hear he's from New York, and he had uh, a body that was like a linebacker. He was about an inch shorter than me. I looked down at him just a little bit, but he was so thick in his arms. I didn't think they made shirts that big. They were so huge in his forearms, and he was full of anger, and I thought he was going to blast the pastor. The next day, I found out the pastor thought he was going to blast him, but he had been caught in adultery by his oldest son and his wife, and the oldest son hit him one time, broke his nose, blackened both eyes, tweaked him, and put him down and out. So I noticed he had stitches in his nose and big circles under his eyes. I said, have you been in a brawl lately? And he said, my son. His son was so angry that he would dare touch another woman. Son is 280 pounds. He leveled this guy like he was a 110-pound weakling. Be faithful, men. Be faithful. Not only to God, but you have no greater asset than the future through your children. And what you send out of this house is what's going to affect this society. You send out knuckleheads like their dad, it's going to be full of a lot of knuckleheads in New Mexico. But you fear God, and those boys and girls are going to fear God, and they are going to do what is right to make things right for their generation if Jesus should tarry. So count it a blessing that God has you where you are. There is never greener pastures on the other side because the heartache that comes with that lasts as a scar for the rest of your life. Even if you're forgiven, it's not worth it. This is worth it. Stories of contrasting men, knuckleheads, self-willed, knuckleheads, self-repentant, Knuckleheads, he gets the knuckleheads woman. 
knuckleheads. He has a heart attack when he faces reality. David, he goes on into eternity as the one who had the throne that the Messiah would sit upon. God has a lot for you. Don't squander it away. Our country and our church need you to be strong and forthright and generous. God bless you, and thank you very much. Thanks,